A man without ethics is a wild beast loosed upon this world. Welcome to Wild Beasts, a podcast about ethics. Are laws always ethical? And what exactly is a restrictive voting bill? Today's episode features a conversation with John Pelissaro, Director of Government Ethics at the Markala Center. I'm Courtney Davis. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing fine, Courtney. Wonderful. I just wanted to start off with some basic questions about how you might describe the current landscape for voting rights um, in the United States. I think voting and the landscape for, for voting and voting rights has changed dramatically since 2020. It's largely due to uh, the spreading of this false story about the stolen election. And, you know, that was being pushed by national leaders, including a president of the United States, now a former president. And it also enabled many in the Republican parties in the states to initiate changes in their own voting landscape based upon, you know, and it's shameful, but based upon the same sort of lie extended to the notion that there was massive voter fraud in the states. Yeah, and we're still kind of dealing with the impacts of that. I just read a study, I think it was on the Brennan Center for Justice. As of 2023, so far this year, state legislators have introduced 150 restrictive voting bills 27 election interference bills, and 274 expansive voting bills. So I want to talk about what you think this is a reflection of, but first, can you define what qualifies as a restrictive voting bill and what qualifies as maybe an expansive voting bill? Yeah, so bills uh, and laws that are designed to suppress and restrict voting are those that just make it more difficult to register to vote, uh, more difficult to participate in the actual voting process, and unnecessarily complicate this democratic process. It's everything from having to provide various forms of identification in order to register to vote or to participate in vote, uh, uh, making polling places more difficult to get to, restricting the ability to cast a a mail-in ballot. Those are all in the category of uh, restrictive voting. And those are really targeted at at the voters themselves and the rights of citizens to participate in our election system. The other effort has been to interfere with the election officials, the local election officials, and their jobs to run elections, count the votes, certify the results. And uh, many of these efforts um, have been classified as efforts to subvert the will of the people, subvert what the voters actually decided. And you see it in places where states, and again, it's it's Republicans in state legislatures and sometimes in concert with their Republican governors, have um, adopted new legislation that allows the state to come in and, in effect, take over the normal processes that local election authorities have for a long time been responsible for and have responsibly undertaken. Yeah, I think a lot of it's crazy. And it's not something that I've spent a lot of time researching myself. And just, yeah, as a citizen of this country, it can be shocking. I read that in the state of Texas, there was a bill proposed 
um, that would allow presidential electors to disregard state election results. I think that that's crazy. And I'm wondering if these bills in some of these states are passed, is there any checks and balances? Like, are there any systems in place that could counteract uh, the, the impacts of these bills? One of the unique problems and perhaps benefits of our election system in the United States is that we have federal elections run locally. And the rules for participating in the elections are really set in many cases by the states. We don't have a federal standard for our national elections. And that's what allows state legislatures to make decisions about how elections will be conducted statewide and at the local level, including those elections for federal offices from president and vice president to United States senators and, and congresspersons. And so the, the recourse, if a state decides to be more restrictive or to try to subvert the, the role of, of election authorities, is really limited to either waiting till the voters can replace those legislators with those that will uh, act in more ethical of a fashion to protect the voting rights of our uh, people, or to take action to the courts and try to get the, the federal or state courts to rule against the implementation of some of these restrictive and uh, subversive uh, bills or, or laws. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of these politicians, they bank on the fact that that's a lengthy process because <laughs> depending on the office, different legislators who will hold that office for oftentimes extended periods of time where the impacts of the bills that they propose that they're passed will, um, you, they're not just instantly reversible. So <laughs> those checks and balances aren't really sufficient. No, and it, what we, we really haven't seen this level of effort, uh, particularly by Republican legislators, to narrow the voting rights in this country, to make it more difficult to participate. We haven't seen this since the middle of the 20th century, before we had the first Voting Rights Act passed in 1965, or before the Supreme Court uh, started disallowing some of the continuing Jim Crow laws that were in effect and designed to restrict the ability of racial minorities to participate in our systems. This is really a set of unethical activities taking place by those who happen to hold power in state legislatures and state governments right now. And it can be reversed either by the courts or by the people in a future election. But as you just said, that takes time. And during the period in which these laws might be in effect, they will make it very difficult for some people to participate in what should be the most treasured and protected of our rights, which is the right to participate as a voter in our democratic systems. Yeah, it's the it's the foundation to be informed and to be able to vote based on the hopefully correct information you have about candidates or about the state of our society. Last time we spoke, you mentioned that there is now what you consider to be this conservative playbook that these states are sort of referring to when proposing bills or thinking about how they could restrict voting in their states. Like there's some form of reciprocity happening across states who have the same goals. Can you talk about that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, there was a time in which, in this country, in which states looked to more innovative states, states that were were really trying an, an innovation for the first time to see, you know, would, would that work? Would it improve the quality of life 
Would it improve uh, something for the common good in our state? And it was really a, an effort to model good practices in states. And what we have seen in the last decade or two is an effort to extend cultural differences, cultural battles in this country from one state to have them take place in as many states as possible. And so you see that with the restrictions that are being passed on what can be taught in schools or what kind of health care can be provided to uh, uh, diverse populations in, in our country. And now it's extended to what kind of restrictions are being done on voting rights in other states that maybe we should consider adopting here? Uh, what kind of ways might we be able to impose a partisan outcome on the work of election authorities that would benefit one political party rather than to ensure that elections are conducted in a fair and honest fashion in this country. It's a surprising development to see how what states are looking to model is not the best behavior, but what in many cases is really anti-democratic behavior. Yeah, and it seems aimed at the seizure of power, right? Just wanting to claim total power over the government. There's really no other way. Well, maybe there is. I mean, do you think that these legislators have ethical justifications that they provide when they propose these bills? Do they give any justification? Wow. <laughs> well, many of the justifications for these bills are based upon lies. So we begin with the notion that they lack virtue, the ethical virtue that we expect in interaction between human beings in our society. And to adopt public policy, not because it's going to be for the common good, but because it's based upon what you know, actually, to be a falsehood. That is where the integrity of elections really fall apart in this country. It's not over massive fraud or uh, having dead people voting or people who are voting more than once in an election. That is the most rare of instances. And audit after audit, state after state, demonstrates that this does not exist. So these uh, state legislators and governors that are pushing for these kinds of uh, restrictive voting bills in their states know that this is based upon uh, something other than facts, and they're acting in an unethical fashion in pushing this out there and then encouraging other states to do what we've just done here. Yeah, that's something else I wanted to talk to you about. And I know that we all started to have these conversations during Donald Trump's presidency, but it all happened so fast that I wonder if there's some earlier precedent for this, but there is a, a large role that disinformation is playing in these trends that we're seeing, not just with voting rights, but with all other kinds of rights and civil liberties that are being infringed upon in this nation. And I'm wondering what you think, I don't want to say the cause of that is, but what role does disinformation play? And what's your take on all of that? Well, you know, for much of the history of politics uh, in this country, we, we have had lies circulated and attempts to persuade voters based upon something other than the truth. And so disinformation is not new. I think what's new and what we've seen, particularly in, in, in the last decade, is how rapidly disinformation spreads in this country. Disinformation about what's going on in the political process, what's happening in the election arenas, and 
campaigns can so rapidly spread this information uh, because of, of technology and the ability to seize upon the internet and social media to rapidly spread information. And then how difficult it is to bring that back and to get the facts out there because it just is so widely circulated and disseminated and reposted and et cetera. So it's just easier for it to happen right now. The other thing that's different though, is when you think about our concerns leading up to the 2016 presidential election, where we were concerned about foreign actors using disinformation to persuade voters in, in one way or another. And we were concerned about foreign actors trying to seize the election machinery, trying to alter ballots or the, the systems of accounting how the ballots were cast. And what we've seen since then is that all of the efforts to impose more cybersecurity have been largely effective in keeping foreign actors from overly impacting things. And what we <laughs> didn't expect to happen or now seeing happen is that the disinformation is actually being done by our own political leaders and candidates running for office um, it, to include the former president of the United States who has widely spread this whole notion about the stolen election. And no matter how many efforts have been made to demonstrate that that did not happen, there's still a good third of this country that believes that, and they believe in this disinformation. And the more they hear about it, the more they circulate it, the more they uh, spread the information. And it's very difficult to kind of put that back in, in the jar. Yeah, put the genie back in the bottle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's very bizarre how we all live and operate in intellectual echo chambers that are separate. It's a different kind of polarization. I've had a lot of conversations about this in the past with folks who have lived through more election cycles than I have. Is this unprecedented or is this something that we've seen before? I mean, I think you said, yes, in other forms, disinformation has always existed, but this status of technology has changed things. And it just seems like there is no real coherent notion of true or, or fact in society, which, yeah, is very corrosive to our political process. It, it is. And, you know, there there was a time not too long ago where we were very focused on the disinformation that was being uh, circulated on cable news programs, satellite radio. And now, it you know, it's spread to streaming services that offer alternative news, for example. And, and they make it very easy when you are, are watching or hearing that news to then be able to circulate it through social media and get more people to perhaps buy into the conspiratorial theories, no matter how discredited they might be, because, uh, gee, my friend who was watching this news program said that is what actually happened in the election, when in fact it did not, but it's out there and then it spreads more and the dissemination of it is almost uncontrollable. So it's going to be an ongoing challenge for campaigns and voting in this country that we try to find a way to ensure that the public is informed and educated in the best ways possible with virtuous sharing of the factual information that actually has integrity behind it in order for us to 
continue to have uh, free and fair and honest elections in this country. Yeah, and I I do want to talk a little bit about some of the elections that are coming up and how we might want to think about voting rights in that time. But before we do that, I want to pivot a little bit to talk about some of the specifics of the existing campaigns that are being levied against certain populations as far as voting rights are concerned. Because we talked a little bit about this last time you and I spoke, and I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about the role that discrimination plays in some of these bills that are proposed by specific states, like the bills that they propose, do they disproportionately impact certain groups or does it proportionately impact the the voting population in these states? There's a clear goal to target uh, those whose political rights and voting rights included in there are at risk and to make it targeted a bit more to communities of color and to those that that represent a much different political viewpoint than those who are, are currently in power. Uh, we see it in, in the whole process of redistricting in this country, where racial gerrymandering has become uh, more common. And despite the fact that the courts oftentimes strike down racially gerrymandered political districts, and the Supreme Court just did it in, I believe it was the Alabama case uh, last week, we still see continuing efforts to try to suppress the vote potential of communities of color in the United States. That's kind of the starting point for these efforts that if you can, first of all, make it more difficult to have fair representation in this country, you can entrench that into the law for 10 years because we don't redistrict unless the court orders a state or a jurisdiction to do so, except every 10 years after the census is completed. And then there are those efforts that are clearly designed to make it more difficult for minority groups in this country to have a fair say in the outcome of our elections. When you look at, for example, the the efforts that have been underway in states like Texas and Georgia that are targeted at the large urban counties where there are more racial minorities, where the voters tend to support Democrats more than Republicans, there is no other reason for these efforts to try to, in effect, impose state partisan officials and their ability to exert power over the local election authorities that in every other county of the state are allowed to do their jobs. There's there's you know a racial dimension behind these efforts. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. I mean, what you said is true. There's a targeted effort to impact voters whose access to voting or ability to vote is already limited or restricted in some way. And oftentimes that's folks who have been discriminated against in the past because of their race or because of, I don't know, whatever, I don't know the full extent of how these districts are drawn or how this process works. I just know that a lot of this stuff has been part of our system, our political system for a while. So it's still easy to exploit. And, no, and there, are, there are also efforts uh, today uh, to try to undo the participation of young people in our election system. Young people are turning out at higher rates than they have historically. And college students lead that, that young group as they come into the age in which they can vote. 
And uh, some states are making it difficult by doing things like saying, well, we can't have, we won't have balloting on college campuses. We won't use college properties as a place where you can cast your ballot. In other instances, they say, well, if you want to register to vote, you want to participate in voting, uh, you can't use your college ID to register to vote. You can't use evidence of being a student who resides in this college community as a basis for being allowed to participate. Now, there's only one reason to be doing that. And that's not because there's some sort of fraud going on among young college voters in this country. It's because they've tended to vote for liberal and Democratic candidates. And so the Republicans in power in some of the states are trying to undo the influence that young people have been able to have by turning out and participating in elections. And um, it's just the opposite of you know, what was done when the 18 to 20 year olds were granted the right to vote. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it does make sense. Like you said, it's frustrating because college campuses are unique spaces in that there aren't a lot of times in a person's life where they're willing to organize and politicize themselves like they do when they're attending a university or when they're on a college campus. It's like there's a unique amount of concerted political effort that people involve themselves in when they're surrounded by a community of young activists or just young people who want to be involved in creating the society that they're going to live in. And so if it very least wasn't illegal to vote on a college campus, like if it was more common to do that, or there was more central organization around that process on college campuses, like it would improve voter turnout significantly. And it's just a a really good place to do that and spread good information about the voting process. So that's yeah, a smart place to target if you want to restrict organized, informed voting for sure. <laughs> and then, yeah, just on the point about organization, I'm wondering if you've seen any kind of grassroots efforts to push back against these bills, or I guess to your point of even just racial gerrymandering, like, is there any alternatives that we can somehow organize around so that courts order redistricting, or there is some earlier than 10 years redistricting that happens in a lot of these states? Does that make sense? Yeah. So the traditional way of of addressing these challenges that, that grow out of gerrymandered districts is to seek recourse through the federal or state courts. And that's a lengthy process and does not always lead to a satisfactory outcome. So there have been efforts underway in a number of states to move to a system of uh, redistricting commissions that would be nonpartisan and would take some of the authority for making recommendations on new districts away from state legislatures or local legislative bodies that tend to be partisan and put them in the hands of uh, not those who are going to be represented by the districts, but by some independent objective group that can look out, if you will, for the public interest and the common good in these redistricting efforts that take place only every 10 years in the states. And so what kind of authority would those commissions have? Would they be filing the lawsuits or how could they enact change in the states that they represent? These redistricting commissions, as they are operating in some states and conceived of in others, 
would actually take the redistricting process under state constitutions away from the state legislatures and these independent nonpartisan commissions would actually draw the new districts and submit them either to a vote of the people or they might be submitted to the state legislature for their approval or to the governor in some cases. But the, it's an effort to take the partisanship out of drawing new districts, whereby those who are currently in legislative seats are in the process of constructing new districts that will still be perhaps politically favorable to their future election fortunes. Right. And so that's my next question is, do you think that any of these efforts will come to fruition before the coming election cycle in 2024? Or is this kind of back and forth going to continue to play out where you have bills proposed to restrict voting rights and then these commissions that are trying to counteract that? Is there going to be this sort of butting heads or do you think? Yeah, I don't think a lot is going to change between now and 2024. Uh, the efforts that are underway in, in many states to expand voting rights and to ensure the integrity of elections and of the authority of the local election officials will be one way that, that some of these efforts will be counteracted upon by those that have the public interest more at heart. But the redistricting commissions, uh, to the extent that they get adopted in the states, they won't be able to do much until the next census is available. So we're talking about elections after 2030. <laughs> okay, so that's a good distinction or point to make is that those commissions will take the power away from partisan officials to draw up the districts, right? But it's still going to follow that same cycle that doesn't help us in the immediate future, that's for sure. I think that my last question for you is about ethics generally. I think at the Markless Center, we often say that ethics is not the same thing as following the law, because a lot of the times, like a good system of law will reflect ethics or have certain ethics in mind when it's written, but laws can deviate from ethical standards. And they often do, especially when there are corrupt people in power. And so I'm just wondering what you think about all of this in the context of voting rights, this idea that ethics gets conflated with the law a lot of the times and what maybe is the importance of ethics in our legal system or in our political system and how should we separate the two or encourage people to remember that they're different? Yes, these efforts to restrict and suppress voting and interfere with the legitimate roles of local election authorities are oftentimes legally done in the states. State legislatures take up a bill, they approve it, the governor signs it into law. And so, yeah, it's legal. It's not necessarily ethical, though, because an ethical system of voting would ensure that voting rights are protected and access to the ballot box is ensured, that fairness is represented in the way we conduct our elections, that we base our laws and our rules on virtuous information, that is the truth and facts, uh, to ensure that we'll have integrity, and that our voting systems um, will protect the common good. Government, more than any other institution in our society, has this special obligation to act on the common good. And again, what is more 
important to the common good in a democracy than protecting the right of people to you know fairly uh, participate in their political system, which begins with voting. You've been listening to Wild Beasts, a podcast from the Markless Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. Thanks for tuning in and check out our website for more episodes about ethics.